Hi, I'm Rachel Bernstein. I'm an educator and licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'm also known as a cult expert. And I've worked with victims of cults and high control groups for over 30 years. I was personally drawn to this work after a family member was indoctrinated into Scientology. I'd like to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Indoctrination. I created the show to help survivors tell their stories and for experts to teach us what they know. My goal for Indoctrination is to empower the listeners to protect themselves and to protect those they love from predators, toxic personalities, and destructive organizations. Since I started the podcast, I've interviewed over 200 survivors and experts and journalists who took the time to come on to cover dozens of different high control groups and cults from a variety of different angles. You can listen to Indoctrination for free anywhere podcasts are available with new episodes dropping every Wednesday. G'day everyone and welcome to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I'm Troy and sitting next to me as usual in the virtual space is my dear friend and sometimes even confidant and mentor, Brian McDowell. How are you, Brian? Oh, that was beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I really built you up. Did you notice? You did. I'm feeling good. So there's room to tear me down after you've, you've <laughs> brought me up that high, which, which is a good thing. And as we've discussed before, Australians do like a little bit of tearing each other down. In jest, of course, in jest. It's always fun. This week, I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. And I think we're going to cover off quite a few things that often come up in our Facebook community. Certainly a lot of our listeners in their feedback to us talk about trauma and certainly talk about the many aspects. And we're going to dig a little bit deeper into that today. We've got Catherine Queering and Catherine is a licensed mental health counsellor and a self-trust coach. Uh, she's an ex-evangelical and she also helps other ex-evangelicals to learn to trust their desires and reconnect to their inner wisdom. She also helps people pleasers learn to trust themselves and recenter themselves at the helm of their lives. So many things that people often talk about. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. So great to be here. We, we are looking forward to this and certainly you are coming to us, we're having a little bit of a chat before we started, that you're coming to us from Pensacola. Pensacola yeah. was a place that when uh, the Toronto Blessing was happening in Australia, it was followed by the Brownsville Revival in Pensacola. I was stepping out of fundamentalism at the time, but gee, it was a big thing. Do you remember it, Troy? Oh, of course, of course. As a matter of fact, I just wanted to say that I actually was wondering at what point in this religious trauma discussion do I assume the fetal position? <laughs> I just, at, at what time don't we? I mean, that, that'll be easier. But. And my, my other connection to Pensacola beyond Brownsville was in the 80s, there was a Gary Coleman TV movie where he kept saying that he wanted to move to Pepsi-Cola, Florida. I was not aware of that. Really? Gary Coleman, as in different strokes, Gary yeah, Coleman. as in what you're talking about, Mr. Drummond. Wow. There you go. Every We will find the name of that movie and put it in the show notes for those who <laughs> yeah, want to catch up right. on a little bit of Gary Coleman. So, but Catherine, we do want to kick off by asking the question we love to ask. You say you're an ex-evangelical, but does that mean you're a teenage fundamentalist? And if you were, tell us about that. Yes, I was. I grew up in a large Southern Baptist church and I was like all in. I was die hard. <laughs> you know, the whole uh, be in the world but not of it and all of the, you, you know, you've had people on in Keith Green's thing and like that was totally in my wheelhouse of like, you're all in, right? Like, this is your life. This is your goal. Like, God is your everything. And if he's not, that's a problem. Like, I helped lead the Christian club at our school. One of the other leader was actually at Brownsville, but I never actually went to Brownsville, which was interesting. I always was like waiting for him to invite me just because I was curious, but all in. I, I, I even remember at one point 
you know, just taking like scripture so literally that the one about like not speaking unless you have something to say that's for the edification of like your brethren or whatever. I like stopped saying just like random conversation. Like I really like it was like policing myself to be like, okay, is this going to help someone? Then I'll say it. That level of <laughs> like, be just like Jesus. So you could never be Australian because we just talk shit. Like sometimes we just banter back and forward yeah. to each other and it's it's not edifying as, as we covered at the start. Uh-huh. So you were waiting to be invited to Pensacola. Does that mean it was like an invite-only revival? I don't know. I suppose I could have just said, hey, I'm going to go. But there were just long lines and mysterious, like when does the service start or does it ever end or is it always still going? Like... I never really knew the details. I just knew there was a lot of hubbub around it. And being a Southern Baptist, did you look across at that and go, oh, this maybe isn't of God? Like, were you anti-charismatic? No, they were. The message from our church or from our pulpit was, there are brothers, but we do it a different way. You know, kind of, we're just not going to touch it other than that. (laughs) But there was, I remember being introduced to more charismatic things when I went away to college and after that and learning that in the Southern Baptist thing that their missionaries have to sign, they have to say they will not speak in tongues or pray in tongues, even like privately, which I just thought was fascinating that there was that level of controlling that, right? We do not want anything to do with that, even if we don't speak ill of it (laughs) for other people to do it. We've got a friend of ours who runs another podcast. Her name's Molly. She's on a podcast called Cheers to Leaving. And her parents were missionaries with the Southern Baptist Convention and they were they were forced to sign that. They weren't allowed to teach anyone to speak in tongues. Mm-hmm. They weren't allowed to speak in tongues. It was a, which is why I asked, I guess. Yes. Right. In the end, Jesus would know, wouldn't he? I mean, <laughs> we'd all be caught out. We can't hide it. That it shouldn't even have to sign anything. So Catherine, how did you end up leaving fundamentalism? What was your journey out? What did it look like? Well, I moved to Chicago for college and I never went back to a Southern Baptist church because I knew that did not fit me. Southern spirituality in general, I don't know that I found a place in. I felt more at home in Chicago and I actually went to a Christian college. I went to Wheaton College because I was all in at that point. And I went to all the like things about we want revival and all of that at the school But within that, that's when I started, you know, my disentangling process or, you know, whatever you want to call that, because there was more space for me to be. There was more space for me to have wider conceptions of God that were less literal and fundamentalist and um, more expansive, kinder. So my kind of next steps were like, God doesn't have to be critical of me or judgmental or like needing to suppress my emotions or any of that stuff. I'm okay as I am. So that was kind of my next steps out of that and into. Did you do time as a progressive Christian? Uh, That's kind of now, but I'm in progressive Christian space. So first it was like liturgical churches that gave me more room for myself and just being like, I could be connected to myself and to God or the divine at the same time. And then I met my husband who is a PCUSA pastor, so more progressive Presbyterian church. And he's the one that got me out of the conservative world um, and was like, oh, that's safe. Like literally when I met him on our first date, you know, I was like, oh, I don't know if this is okay. <laughs> and he's from the like more liberal side, like the, the level of like suspicion that's created in all of the conservative world is just insane. I was like, oh, they love Jesus too. Okay, this is cool. And that gave me permission to leave a lot of the the next step of leaving the literalism behind. And then now I'm in that church. My husband is still a pastor, but he's so open and non-judgmental and like there's space for whatever my spirituality is there. So there's there's less focus on right belief and more focus on kind action. So that works for me. And it's so often a story we hear of people look for a gentler expression, I guess, of of how they can express their faith. And sometimes that means not expressing it at all because they're they're done with it. And sometimes it is definitely a a progressive expression. And some people definitely stay in that. I mean, we, we talk to 
Bart Ehrman uh, a couple of months ago, and Bart was talking about how a couple of his closest friends are progressive Presbyterian ministers. So it, it's interesting, isn't it, that everyone's journey is different, and it is definitely great to hear the non-judgmentalism because I think that is one thing that we will certainly touch on today in our conversation about the damage that that part of Christianity and fundamentalism can do. So tell us how you got to where you are today as being a therapist, someone who specialises really in working with evangelicals or people damaged by religion and and you know experiencing religious trauma and many of the effects of that. How did you get there and, and what does it look like, your practice? So I noticed over the course of my time as a therapist, what I was really passionate about was anything that had taken someone out of their bodies and kept them from trusting themselves. And so that was sexual abuse, narcissistic abuse, emotionally mature parents, any sort of abuse in childhood that left you with these like wounds about who am I and shame and things like that. And then when I moved back to Pensacola a few years ago, I decided it was time to face the triggers that I had here from religious trauma. And that's what propelled me into that. And like, okay, I need to make sense of why if I flip through the Christian radio station, I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't handle this. And so that's what led me into that. And I was like, oh, all these pieces come together because you experience all of those things through high control religious trauma. So that was kind of a discovery for me of like, oh, that's why I'm passionate about all these things because I've experienced them in different ways through the religious setting. So how do you discover this as a therapist? Are, are there courses that you do? Do they address this in your, your college study or do you do external readings? How does one discover religious trauma as a focus for therapy? Uh, that's a good question. I assume we different people come to it different ways. I've talked to people who have not had their own religious trauma as therapists, but they have clients who do. So they're trying to increase their knowledge. Um, and there's different summits and organizations and people writing about it that are helpful to be connected with or learn from. For me, it was really just dissecting what I had experienced. Um, so I was dissecting it through the lens of patriarchy and colonization and dominion and empire and um, attachment and narcissism and just kind of trying to make sense of it through all the frameworks I had to make sense of painful traumatic experiences. But I did a lot of reading. You call out, evening your title as a, a therapist, self-trust coach. So mm -hmm. self-trust is obviously something that is fairly pivotal in people's recovery. Tell us how that, that works, that self-trust, and how is it eroded through people's Christian journeys? I'm going to actually start with how we learn to trust ourselves again. So my kind of basic framework for walking through that and what I have in my course and a book I'm working on is first understanding the reflect, understanding the messages that, and the systems that created the pain. And then I will go into like more specifics about that. Then releasing what no longer serves you, reconnecting to yourself and learning. I actually can trust myself. I can learn as a human how emotions and my body cues and trauma work so that I know I can trust what I'm experiencing there and I can be my own compass and inner authority. Then reclaiming anything that was lost, right? Like aspects of ourselves that we were never able to live into before, such as embodiment or sexuality or having a voice, being assertive and reclaiming the parts of us that were like diehard fundamentals. How can we have compassion for those parts of us and bring them into where we are today and say, like, thank you for helping me survive. And now I want you to live with me. <laughs> like you get to be with me now um, in this new way and then reemerging, feeling more whole and grounded and trusting yourself. How does that happen? How is that eroded? Um, you know, I mean, we certainly, when we certainly were fundamentalists, it was don't trust your gut. Don't trust your your feelings. You know, listen to the spirit, listen to God, which essentially quite often, more often than not, meant listen to your leaders, listen to those who wanted to control you and lead you and basically define what your faith had to be. So how does that how does it happen? I know that's probably part of it, but what's what's the depth and what are some of the the methods of how that happens? So I'll talk first about just kind of 
some of the messaging that we got that was, right, that we are evil, depraved, sinful, there is nothing good in me, right, from Paul and Romans, all of this stuff from the Augustinian kind of thought that our flesh is bad and evil and not to be trusted and we will always leave ourselves astray. And that theology is woven into like all of our messaging, right? And is the heart of what's supposedly the good news that first you need to realize how awful you are and then God is going to save you. Hallelujah. (laughs) But there's always this coming back to like, you are never worthy. All of the songs are about like, God, fill me up, fill me up. I'm not worthy, right? Like, please fill me up over and over and over. We are put in this place of pleading and lack of any agency, lack of any sense of control, right? That we are always supposed to be like infants dependent on God. And that sets up this like narcissistic relationship too, right? Where like, we're always supposed to be distrusting ourselves and, always glorifying and like so grateful for God bringing anything good to us and noticing us and like, you know, deigning to like be in our presence. More of you, less of me. I must become less so that he can become more. I think it's interesting that we use that word must as well. I must become less so that you may become more. Right. Exactly. And there was so much messaging about like, one, yourself is depraved and evil. And then two, you're not even allowed to have a self. You're supposed to empty yourself out and hollow yourself out for God to fill you. Like, I remember really, like, literally trying to hollow myself out. Like, I'm not allowed to exist and just trying to exist on the margins of my life. <laughs> and like, I called it sidestepping myself um, because I could tell I could never get to the core of me because I wasn't allowed to. But yet I had to be happy about it. There's also that suppression of emotions where you can't acknowledge any feelings of being upset about that. You have to always be worshipful or you go in this cycle of like, oh, then I'm anxious or upset. And that means I'm away from God and God won't be near me. And I need to like come back to like (laughs) feel worshipful to like everything to be okay again. So that whole cycle, anything related to sexuality that's not cis heterosexual, like basically asexual until you're married is wrong and evil and like you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> and even that, even after you're married, you still can't trust it, right? It's still right. it's still something to be really fearful of and something to be controlled. Right. And that's part of where I was talking about learning to trust your desires, that they're not something you have to be afraid of, right? That your desires are actually what bring you abundance in life instead of something that is going to bring evil into your life. In the modality that I use the most in therapy, it's called internal family systems, and they divide the different impulses or parts we have of us into two different kinds of protecting parts of us. And one is basically our desires. Like they're holding things that we like to do. They help distract us when we're upset. They help defend us when things are bad. And those, I think, have basically been relegated to the shame pile in these denominations and all of the other ones are called managers. So they're the controllers and the like organizers and the um, critics and all of that have been elevated to like, that is the only thing that's allowed to exist. I would put OCD and scrupulosity in that category too. All of these things that torment us and keep us controlled and in a box, when all of our parts are unburdened and like in healthy states, they're going to work with us. But basically, like, we need to reclaim all these, like, parts that give us rest and abundance and desire and tone down all these managing parts that thought they had to control because we're in such a controlling system. As part of this, you talk about um, in some of your theoretical framework as God being a narcissist is an absolute key tenant of fundamentalist Christianity. Can you tell us about that and unpack that a bit for us? Yeah, absolutely. I was actually, I, I think it's interesting in in like the idea of a cult, right? Like a small cult, we think of there is a narcissistic charismatic leader at the top. And in some of these fundamentalist churches or settings, the pastor or the leadership might be that way, but they may not actually have narcissistic personality disorder. What is happening there that is still holding this whole system in a covert narcissism kind of haze with all these power and control tactics and manipulation and everything. And one is that there's this ideological framework that's held up as like, that is 
the thing that we are that's controlling everyone. So the way we're interpreting the Bible, right? And then God is set up to look like a narcissist, the conception of God. So God is all powerful. God can never change. God is never wrong. So if anybody is wrong, anything's wrong, it's you, right? So this way that the narcissist always passes on blame, never takes responsibility, us, them mentality, the mixed messages that were given about God is all good and he's waiting to torment you if you don't accept him in a certain way. I mean, they're doing theological gymnastics or spiritual bypassing and all these things to evade, don't give you any straight answers, right? Just trust us and reinforcing that hierarchy and also demanding this absolute authority. I mean, absolute authority and loyalty. And that's exactly what a narcissist does. There is no room for with. There's only fear me and do what I say. So those are a few of the ways, the fear mongering, there are so many. <laughs> I'm I'm listening to this, I've got to say, and I'm just, it's just Trigger City. This is exactly what I did for decades of my life. And I've been out of church now for 25 years or almost 25 years. And still a lot of that thinking is there. I don't know if it's quite what people mean when they talk about magical thinking, but I still very much guard, here comes the Christianese, I guard my thought life. I get really freaked out when I think the wrong things because I think someone's watching, even though consciously, cognitively, I don't believe in all that anymore, but there's these these patterns. So I can see how destructive it is. And, and sorry if I'm jumping ahead, but how do we free ourselves from that? So the way that I do that is I would say, let's befriend that part of you and be curious about it and compassionate towards it, right? Because it is still bringing that forward in your life when there's that trigger and that reminder because it's trying to keep you safe. And it doesn't know that it doesn't have to be a scare there. So we say like, hey, can you trust me? Can you see that like we're in a very different place in life now? Troy is totally able to handle this. He knows that's not true. And he's not scared of it anymore, right? So you don't have to be scared of it either. Could you come find a different job in a different place in my system? So that's what I would do like in a therapy session. And that helps soften that part where it can be like, oh, I don't have to, I don't have to do that anymore. That's great. <laughs> and that's where Troy, for the next step, you've got to book in for a session with Catherine and say, that's the hook. That's the hook. I did say, let's assume the fetal position, right? <laughs> because we're going for, a, for an yeah. emotional plane crash. When I was looking at the notes for this session and, and hearing a session, excuse me, for this episode and thinking about you coming on, I was thinking, oh shit, man, this is me. <laughs> yeah, all of us, right? So, I mean, the, doing my own IFS therapy with my own therapist has been the most transformative part of me finding healing. And I literally was just going through like, each of these messages and these burdens as they were like in my life and be like, okay, got to let go of the burden, clear it out, like the release part. Right. And I'm reconnecting and reclaiming these parts of myself and they can be in a different place. So, I mean, I had some that were <laughs> like the, in the world, not, but not of it was like this huge anvil inside of me. It was awful. And it was like crushing these other parts of me that I had to go to the hospital afterwards and like recuperate. And then they've like been reclaimed, got rid of all those. And then it was just like a desert. And then there was space to be like, oh, I can connect to the divine again. And now it's Mother Earth and it's a goddess. And like I have this tree of life inside and all of those parts are coming to live there in this place of wholeness instead of being still holding those fears. Right. And if any parts of me I notice still have them, then I invite them into that place. And that's just kind of that kind of continuous process. Is that connected also to, sorry to turn this into my therapy session, Catherine, but is, <laughs> is that, is, I'm just sitting here going, okay, I told you, assume, assume the position. Is that tied to the fear of success or I don't so much mean fear of success, but celebrating your own success? Because that's another thing of I must become less and he must become more. Because I still see that in myself that things will go well for me. And I have to say, and I, I mentioned this in the Facebook group more recently, but I have to say to myself, oh, careful, don't get proud. And I'm not allowed within myself to celebrate my own successes because we were taught it's not you and God is waiting to punish you if you get too proud. Yeah. So we just take that part and say like, hey, what are you afraid of? Is that still true? 
what do you need to know to be able to trust Troy to try something else? Could we do a little experiment, right? Like I always say, treat it like a science experiment. Let's, can we try something else? Is it worth trying a little step different? And oh, okay. Yeah, I can trust Troy to be there or be safe or change that. And then eventually, oh, can I find a new job? Now, underneath that, there is often a exile part or a tender part that is holding pain. And you have to heal that part too. And that's when the full healing comes. Because the protectors are there because there's still a part holding pain. That part just basically has to come hear that from you. That it's okay and we can let it out. We've spoken about this before, Troy. You've got to stop listening to Whitney Houston, How Will I Know? Remember? <laughs> she says, don't trust your feelings. And we're saying, trust your feelings. So just embrace. That's fine. Hey, I, I do want to, sorry, Troy. No, I'm just thinking that really we could we could continue on with that and this could be you because I'm thinking there's a boy I know, he's the one I dream of. <laughs> I could think, this is my mentor friend, Brian. You heard me gush at the kickoff. It's beautiful. I'm blushing now. A lot of my work is working in family and domestic violence here in Australia. So it's a significant focus. We've had a royal commission into it and we've invested billions of dollars in, in trying to fix it or certainly address it. A lot of the issues that certainly come up in the work that we work with men who perpetrate family violence is narcissism, is control. It, it is all of those sort of things, personality dis disorders and whatnot. The way you've described the fundamentalist Christian relationship with God as a narcissist and people are, you know, you're not meant to just... Um, have a relationship with God. Like, uh, sorry, you are meant to have a relationship with God. So here you are having a relationship with a narcissist with a personality disorder. What does that do for your attachment patterns? And how does that translate in later life, if, particularly if you're growing up in that? How does that work? How does that affect your relationship? Surely that damages all of that along the way. Yeah, absolutely. It ends up being where you end up being like the middleman and passing on the the pressures of appeasing this like narcissistic God as the enabler. You pass on that pressure and that oppression to the people underneath you and around you. You're told you're supposed to intervene in their lives in order to make sure they're not sinning, right? And don't go to hell. Like there's this carte blanche to just be constantly judging everyone around you and like intervening in their lives at any moment. And support comes in terms of like accountability holding them accountable instead of actually being curious and supporting people around you and giving them autonomy and respect and the benefit of the doubt. So there's that piece of it I was thinking about. I was just reading this book called Breaking Their Will about religious child mal maltreatment. And that's one of the things that Janet Heimlich was talking about in there that I thought was really helpful in these really authoritarian systems under a oppressive, in this case, narcissistic God. And it is so similar to these domestic violence things that you're talking about, right? Where the parents are basically reacting as little kids themselves to whatever <laughs> has happened in their own lives. And so they're really reactive and they're taking their pressures out on their kids. And then if they're not present, the kids take it out on each other, right? Because when you're bullied or you're oppressed, you have to take that out on someone weaker and smaller. And so that kind of just keeps trickling down as far as that goes, even though your intent may not be to hurt them, right? Like you wouldn't let somebody outside the family hurt your siblings, but you can hurt them kind of thing in order to keep them in line or save them, right? Which is the same thing happening in these really abusive families that's happening in the church situation, but it's often emotional and supporting like corporal punishment, extreme punishment of kids in families in these settings. So I, I think the irony of the gift of a lot of evangelicalism or what they say is part of the good news is the gift is that God wants this really personal relationship with you and is really present to you, right? Is not just off in the sky somewhere, not caring. What happens then though, is there's so much pressure around that, that you being close to God and having this close relationship with God is proof of you being right with God. And I'm doing air quotes being able to go to heaven and all of these things that it becomes another marker that's very ambiguous. It's more this internal 
fear and anxiety and self-policing around that and shame around that of trying to maintain this feeling and this connection with God that everything's right. And if that feeling gets off, then you're like, oh no, I must've done something wrong. I need to pray more, read my Bible, do more devotions. God must've turned away from me because of these, you know, the teachings, God can't be around you if any sin. So (laughs) you have to make sure you are perfect and not sinning at every moment, right? So there's this relationship dynamic to that, as well as the fear of if you die, you'd go to hell if you were in that position, right? Oh, even even more than that, here we go. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. And so if you're not in perfect peace, you're it's nothing wrong with, with narcissistic God. It's all you. Exactly. And that's part of this narcissistic system. The blame is always on you. There is never any accountability. There is never any look at the impact. It's like, nope, if anybody's wrong, it must be you. And it's, so instead of our bodies giving us this information about the trauma and the pressure, it's, oh no, that's another thing to be afraid of and like condemn myself for, right? And figure out how to get out of. And it just keeps spiraling because the tension just keeps getting more and more and more. So on that theme then, if someone is a narcissistic Christian, does that sort of protect them a little bit from that narcissistic God? And I ask this genuinely, does it mean that people aren't as affected by that because they can't take that responsibility that it would ever be their fault? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I don't have a definitive answer on that. I was just reading reading something by Lisa Rankin lately where she had done, you know, research into narcissism in general and people that have less empathy, there's less like emotional load on them as far as caring. But I think that leaves out this whole piece of you're also not getting a whole wealth of your needs met, right? Like you never feel connected, you never feel supported or loved or any of the things that really buoy you and like feed your soul. So I'd say maybe on one hand, there's less guilt maybe, or there's this such a knee-jerk reaction away from any guilt or shame to push it on someone else that you're not aware of it. But I think it takes a lot of energy to do that. There's like a lot of shame hiding right behind that. So I would say maybe in the moment there's not awareness, but that it takes a lot of energy to do that and to keep finding new sources and keep pushing it away and keep doing all these power and control tactics. So that's my take on it. (laughs) No, no, I was just interested. It was a thought bubble. Just thought, no, maybe narcissists are protected from narcissist God, or maybe they join together for evil. Who knows? Yeah. I think it's more like enablers. Are you doubting your religious beliefs? Having questions about changing or leaving your faith? Well, you're not alone. And Recovering From Religion is here to help. Learning how to live after questions, doubts, and changing your religious beliefs is a journey. The people at Recovering From Religion are intimately familiar with this path and are there to help you cross that bridge. Their passion is connecting others with support, resources, community, and most of all, hope. They offer both peer and professional support. Find out more by visiting recoveringfromreligion.org or find the links in our show notes. Hey, my name is Bart Campolo. And if you've listened to this podcast for very long, you may already know who I am because I was a guest on this very show. I was a professional evangelical for a very long time before figuring out that I didn't believe in God anymore. And here's the deal. For the better part of a decade now, I've had my own podcast for people like me, people like you, people who are interested in what life looks like after faith. On Humanize Me, we try to figure out how to make sense of things when you don't believe in God anymore, where I talk to artists and scientists and activists and writers, all of whom are sort of wrestling with this question, like how do we make meaning? How do we build better relationships? How do we cultivate gratitude and wonder for the privilege of existence? How do we make things better for other people in a thoroughly secular way? If you're interested in that kind of conversation, someday you might want to check out Humanize Me, and I hope you do. In the meantime, back to Brian and Troy. I can remember some years ago, probably 15 years ago, I stumbled over the writings of Marlene Winnell, but her book was called Leaving the Fold. And it was all about walking away. And she talked about the inner child and all this. And I don't know, maybe the timing was wrong, but I read that and I just couldn't quite connect with it. When I read her stuff, it was like, well, what what do I do with this? If people are listening to this 
and they're saying, okay, I can see that and I can see how that's been a problem. And yes, that's me. What do we, what do, we do about that? What, what, where do we go with this? So I think one is just identifying where you're at and what you need first. We can be so many different places in this journey. And the reason I focus on trusting yourself is I think that is such a fundamental part of our healing, whether or not that starts from a place of I need to be able to trust my thoughts and my critical thinking. I need to be able to trust my emotions and that they're just clues and information, or I need to be able to trust my body and live more in my body. And I think each person has a different one of those that feels most important to start with or more natural or is already happening maybe like with the last straw of like why, why they got out of the church. And so I'd say that's the place to start, which one of those things feels like it's calling you and then get as much clarity, like space there as you can. I've been reading a lot of like anti-oppression, anti-racism work. And one of the things I read recently by Bell Hooks was needing a space on the margins, which is kind of what this whole ex-evangelical religious trauma community, I think, is trying to do, right, is have the space on the margins to heal. And then from there, you can do whatever other kind of connecting or speaking out or like change, but having this kind of cocoon around that time, right, of like, how do I grieve and shift and heal, make enough sense of what happened, find a safe space for myself, be able to say, I'm in this liminal, you know, like transitional space. What does that look like? What do I need to feel a little bit more grounded, to feel a little bit more like ease or trust in myself and have a little bit more of that grieving and releasing process as I'm moving towards that? One thing that I often thought about over the years is growing up, I was always, I was always and remain today quite an intuitive person. I did, I know we spoke before about trusting your gut. Like that was something for me that I don't know what it was. It was just, I just knew if something was a little bit off and there was something that would, and, and I really learned to trust that. That was something deeply I learned to trust. When I became a Christian, that was, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. And oh, that's your, um, it's, it's wisdom and it's wisdom in God and all that sort of thing. I didn't believe that even at the time because I didn't grow up a Christian. Um, I became a Christian when I was 17. So for me, that deeper intuition and the trusting that if something is off, just beware, just be really careful. That is really just torn away from you as a Christian. You know, let go and let God. If something doesn't quite make rational sense, well, it makes sense in the spirit. And all of those sort of things, which leaves the doors wide open for abuse because all of a sudden you've broken down all of that systematically and whether it's intentional or not, I would argue to a large degree it is. So then you can be really subject to those deeper teachings which do manipulate you. Just wondering what your thoughts are around that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is one of the most crushing <laughs> things that happens is that level of disconnection from ourselves. One, because that's such a place of authenticity and being able to be in our true selves. And also, you know, agency along with that and critical thinking. But our, our bodies are also what tell us what's safe or not, as well as what's good for us or not. And that is stripped away from us. And you know, one of the other power and control tactics with narcissism is controlling the interpretation of reality. Gaslighting's done really well, but that's part of that is that, oh, this feeling you're having, that's really this. Oh, that intuition you're having, that can't be from you because it contradicts this verse, right? Or what we're teaching or that kind of thing. It must be of the devil or it must be, you know, you can't trust yourself. <laughs> Go pray some more. And that level of second guessing yourself or not being able to be at home in your body and trust those cues is so, so detrimental and really does create like little automatons, basically. And that is the cult-like aspect of that, right? That level of control, because the thing that is going to bring you awareness and get you out of it is what they're trying to take away from you. Usually we do associate that with what broader society would consider a cult, people in a compound or those who are exclusive, not mixing with society. But we certainly do see that in mainstream religions of, of many types. But obviously we're talking about Christianity here. 
Do you think that's intentional? And I know that this is very subjective, but do you think that is an intentional tactic or it's something that's passed down and learned over generations of inverted commas leading? I think system-wide, it is probably not intentional. That's why I kind of separate if there's a specific person with narcissistic personality disorder, generally their intent is both to harm you and the impact is the harm. And if there's a narcissistic system, individual people within that system, their intent can be for good, right? Because they're told this is supposed to be good for that other person and for me, right? Like I am doing this heavy duty pushing and proselytizing because I need to save you. I'm using these fear tactics because it is so important to save your soul. So the the tactics around it are excused in order to get for this intent of saving them, right? And there is no space and no willingness to listen to the impact. So I think that's different when you have specific narcissistic leaders or people who have, or even people in churches or communities, right? That don't have any empathy that really just want to use people. Their intent probably is not. But I mean, that's how I think we all get turned into some sort of uh, using narcissistic tactics with each other, right? When we're part of the system, even if our intent is good. So maybe it's, for want of a better word, the algorithms have kicked in and the dynamic exists and people are just playing in that system rather than some Dr. Evil sitting at the top sort of controlling it. Right. Yeah, because I think, and, and you may have heard it in some of our episodes, but we quite often do you know, try and dig around, sometimes you've got to dig deep sometimes to find the good in situations. And definitely I, I still have a lot of fond memories of being part of even fundamentalist Christian communities and that closeness and that protection that you you felt in that. But when you take a step back, when you look back at it, you, you do see that a lot of these tactics were used. A lot of them were absolutely about stripping you back to, to nothingness. So you could be built up in Jesus, built up in Christ. And the ones that built you up, as I said before, were the leaders. And generally, more often than not, they were quite damaged. And maybe that's because they'd been in the system a while, they'd learnt this stuff, and they definitely, it was a system of degradation. I mean, it was over and over and over, you felt that. And I think I was quite fortunate that I wasn't in fundamentalism for that long. Like my journey in fundamentalism was five years or less, but there was certainly the scars of that. And what another um, therapist, Josie McSkimming, that we've, we've um, had on the show talks about sites of injury, those, those scars that, you know, certainly beat us down. And that is one of them for me is that control thing. And I, I really trigger around when someone tries to control me, tell me what to do. And I've got to check myself because sometimes that can be in a work setting where I'm going, oh, no, that's actually okay because they've got to tell me to do this. This is something I've got to deliver on in my job. But I find myself really reacting to it deeply sometimes. We always try to move towards what feels more protective or get more space from those things that were harmful. Absolutely. Now, we do want to really focus a little bit on you and your practice and certainly some frameworks that you've developed for people to be able to tap into. And I know that you have got some tools online that people can access as well. But you've spoken about things like here, I'm going to rush through them and you can pick pick back up which bits make sense to you to start with. But, you know, the healing modalities around that embracing healthy attachment, uh, self-trust, reclaiming your goodness of being a human. So incredibly important because we've been told for many years that we are nothing but a steaming pile of shit. And your healing framework. Oh, sorry, that was, that was an Australianism. Uh, not everyone says a steaming pile of shit. Uh, we would say a steaming pile of turd. And, you know, your close, closer, was it closeness consent matrix as well that you have? So all of those things there, you know, you've certainly got frameworks for people to work through. Did you want to touch on um, and spend, you know, spend some time on walking us through how that actually works in contributing to the the healing journey? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what's kind of speaking to me to start with is the internal goodness. So I think we can approach that from a few ways. One is if people are still in a place that they feel like there is some authority from scripture and they 
they need that as backup, right? Like I, I like um, the idea of the original blessing, I think is a really helpful way of reconceptualizing Eden and the creation story from the Bible, but in a very different lens that's pre-Augustinian, pre-like anything that's we're just depraved and bad and ugly and kind of reclaiming that, that I think is a helpful way to think about that even from as a part of the biblical narrative. For anyone that's away from that, which mostly me, one of the helpful things is like, I don't really look, the Bible doesn't mean a whole lot to me as much, except for to know that like, there are other ways to interpret it. And like, it's helpful to know that more progressive and open Christians can still find some ways of being there that aren't just penal substitutionary atonement, but like, we must be depraved and evil and God. I know what you're saying, Catherine, because one of the things that I think is important sometimes in the way that we will talk with our audience on the podcast is we say, if you still believe this, this may be a value to you, but even those of us that no longer believe, I think sometimes there's a script, there's a script in our mind that might be based on the Bible or based on, you know, religious belief. So sometimes taking that, even when you are in an evangelical position, taking the Bible and using it to undo some of the bullshit is a good thing. So yeah, I just want to, I just want to concur. I think that's exactly right. I, I think even though we have walked away, sometimes a scriptural argument or a reinterpret of, reinterpretation of scripture can be extremely helpful. Right. And so I found there's Daniel Schroyer has a talk um, on that, I think through Center for Action and Contemplation or Evolving Faith, I can't remember, but a really helpful talk on original blessing. Matthew Fox has a book on it. And I like the idea of like Eden is even a, conceptualized as a womb that God is birthing us out of, that it's not something that we're being expelled from, but it's something that's like new life and birth and you're good in being sent into the world, which is a very different conception of our goodness as humans. In IFS, internal family systems that I mentioned before, that has been kind of my guiding light as far as understanding humans. And it really dovetails with most First Nations kind of um, an indigenous spirituality where we are part of the ecosystem and the way that nature works is the same way that our system works and that our communities work and that our governments work. And it kind of flows through all of the systems pretty equally. And one of the my favorite things about that modality, one, it came out of listening to the impact and not just a white man listening to like, this is my idea of like a framework for understanding humans and I'm going to tell you I'm the expert on you. It came from none of these therapy modalities are working in the situation. I want to listen and be curious and compassionate. And that's how it started. And I love that then the wisdom of that dovetails with other wisdoms that we know that are also generative and life-giving and encourage giving and reciprocity. So just all that to say, that's part of where that framework comes from. It talks about having a core self that is our greatest ally. So we have these protector parts that I mentioned and the vulnerable parts that might be holding pain. And then once they release that are holding playfulness and life and vitality for us. And in our core self is what they call it. So it could be our spirit, consciousness, soul, source, like whatever you want to call that highest wisest self. There are several things that They've identified, and there's probably more, but that includes compassion, clarity, calm, curiosity, courage, creativity, connection, and confidence. And so anytime you experience that in your life, there's generally more like ease, perception, healing, openness, liberation, expansion, right? Like all of these things that we experience in healthy connection and spirituality and just perceiving and being at rest. Um, and ourselves and in the world. And I think that one of the hopeful things is we don't have to be dependent on anyone else to give that to us. We all have that as our birthright and as part of us and is a sacred part of us, I think, in my own conception that is connected to like every other sacred part of the world. And so the more that I've been able, I'm speaking from my own experience and I've heard the, some of the other IFS people speak to this as well. The more I've been able to unload the burdens of my parts and welcome them into the system and have my core self be more of the leader, 
and the like life giver in my system and in my inner world, the more I feel both connection with myself and this like universal connection, right? That people speak of, monks speak of, right? After lots of transcendence. And it feels like both transcendence and eminence to me because I'm both at once grounded and connected to everything. And I just love this. That's part of my conception of this secure attachment to yourself, right? Is that this part of us can help repair all of the things that we heard from our parents and our religious leaders and from our conception of God and be like, nope, I got this. I can hear you. I'm open to all of the information as information. I don't have to judge it, be worried about it, afraid of it. And I can handle it all and make a decision that's a corporate decision. That makes sense. So like I love to as a therapist, I don't have to be anyone's expert, right? Like they don't have to keep coming to me to stay in a good place. They keep healing and getting more of this internal resource available to them. How do people who've been told all of their lives that wisdom only comes from God. You you can't you can't surely have that inside you because once you've let go of God, then surely the wisdom went at the same time. How do people restore that? How do people tap into that? Yeah, so I think one avenue is questioning like who told me that? Is that actually in the Bible if that's where I need to look for that from? What did the Bible actually mean if it is? And who is it benefiting for me to believe that and believe it in a certain way? And if it is just for me to fit in this religious mold, right, or be safe, can I have some curiosity about like, what if there's some other way? Or can I have some curiosity about curiosity about like, can I find that in myself, even if I call it as being God led or God infused or God given, right, but not God taking over me? Like, is that possible to start considering what I would, the word I was looking for earlier, that was kind of my segue point was contemplative Christianity. So space for like Taize and traditions where I could be connected to myself and God and have that sense of internal wisdom that was with and not over. Um, And so that might be kind of one place to do that. And then another is kind of connecting with the, the intuition, your own intuition, and just in like tiny little things. Is it okay for me to be aware inside of like, I like that. I don't like that. I feel safe. I don't feel safe. I like this food. I don't like this food. Like really simple things that give us information about what we like. And then, well, that's not a moral judgment. So if I take it the next step, why is that become a moral judgment? Or can that be neutral as well? Catherine, we talked about the value of using spiritual frameworks, even if we've walked away. But what about people that are allergic to them now? What about people that are saying, look, I I, I don't want to know, but I still want to move forward. I still want to grow. I still want to heal. What advice do you have for them? I mean, one of the first things is still, can I trust myself? I still need myself as an ally, no matter what, and that I can trust I'm the authority and I don't have to listen to any other spiritual authority. I can be as secular as I want. I can be as like disconnected from anything as I want. I think it's also helpful to know that having space and autonomy is hugely important in healing. If we've been somewhere where we've been controlled, we need so much more autonomy. And can I just listen to that and thrive in that, in that space of autonomy and acceptance? And does it help to listen to other people who are in that expansive space and find other places that are in that expansive space not just in their language, but in actually how I feel there, right? And that's part of that cueing into the body because that's what's going to tell you, yeah, this feels good or this doesn't feel good. I've definitely been in other like spiritual spaces that use the right language, but I still feel the narcissistic tactics. I still feel shamed and belittled and controlled and like all the stuff to be like, okay, nope, that's not good. (laughs) Can I find just hobbies and spaces in the world for me to be like, I'm okay in the world. And what if I'm safe? What if I'm safe no matter what, right? Like what if I'm safe now and after I die, whatever happens then and with any thought I have, I think part of that is what is my focus? Is it, am I safe or what do I need? Um, Like identifying those needs, right? Like what is the main thing that I need more of right now and I need to heal from? 
And I think it's I think it's probably something that's a lifelong readjustment for people who have been involved in, you know, and, and subject to religious trauma. I mean, it's a complex beast, I think, that people continue to unpack. And as Troy spoke about before, over 20 years since he left Christian community and Christianity as a whole, but still the effect of it, it's pretty significant. Catherine, there's such a lack of people to be able to tap into to speak about religious trauma, particularly within Australia. I'd imagine it's similar within the States. How do people connect in with you and your work? And can they actually reach out to you to to access therapy through you, whether it's online or, or face-to-face? And tell us about all those different points of connection. My website is the best way to find everything for me, which is cqcounseling.com for my initials, CQ. I am also on Instagram and Facebook and the places, but I spend most of my time doing like really in-depth emails because that helps me go deep and not just be busy. So I'd say that's the first place to start is get on my website. There's several free quizzes and to see like if you've been exposed to Um, narcissism and religious settings, what your attachment style was with God and how that impacts your healing, a brief little video masterclass about just this process of learning to trust yourself and listen to your emotions. And then I have some courses on learning to trust yourself again, healing from covert narcissism. I am totally available for one-on-one or group coaching. I can do that in Australia. I can only do counseling in Florida, Virginia, and Illinois because that's where I'm licensed. (laughs) Other than that, I can do coaching everywhere. There's also other, I think I would hit Australia though. It was like, there's some other resources like Reclamation Collective has um, a list of religious trauma therapists, which I think is helpful in some places like that. So if a a bunch of our listeners or a a group of our listeners wanted to contact you and say, hey, how do we go about coaching? You can obviously help them to do that and wherever they are in the world, which is amazing. What we'll do is we will get all of the the references and we'll put them on the, in the show notes. And any of those things that you have spoken about today around the tools, whether they be yours or whether it be the, you know, some of the other books or whatever, if you want to send those to us, we'll also put those in the show notes to make sure people can access them. I'm thinking about, we had Danielle Mayfield on recently. And one of the things that she was talking about is people needing to do the work. And I think what can happen sometimes is we can listen to a podcast on something like this and think, okay, I'm done now. Right. But actually what you're doing, Catherine, is you're inviting people to do the work and you're inviting them to, I guess, unpack, to deconstruct, reconstruct. So I I guess I just want to speak, speak that out and say that the answers aren't sitting here in a one hour podcast. This is supposed to be an invitation to, to unpack and to, to go on a journey with you. So am I right in hearing that if a group of our listeners wanted to get together and have some sort of small group style situation that you would you, you could actually lead that as well? It doesn't have to be one-on-one, which may be cost prohibitive, whereas a group of them might actually be more affordable. Yep, I can absolutely do that. Wonderful. That's great. I, look, we do. it is one thing that we hear quite often because you know, Josie McSkimming, who is definitely one of the leading experts in Australia, she's just booked out forever. So it's really difficult to, to tap into that. So the great thing is about being in a global community that we can offer these things. So if people do want to reach out, those details will be in the show notes. So thank you so much for that. But also thank you for today. I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation, Troy, right now in the fetal position in the corner of his room, I know has enjoyed <laughs> the conversation as well. That's fine. We're going to do rebirthing after this, so it's it's not a problem at all. But look, it's so it is a really traumatic thing to quite often tap into for many many people, but so so deeply important. You know, if we want to go forward, if we want to actually be healthy and thriving. We have to tackle this stuff. And it's bloody hard. It's really, really Yeah, yeah, hard. you have to do the work, as they say. That's you have right. to do the work. Yeah. I think it was even Rob Bell was saying that, you know, years ago on one of the podcasts I was listening to, saying, you have to do the work. You have to do the work. You do. So I would say yes, and start with curiosity and compassion. Because any resistance you have is for a reason. 
and you don't have to override your resistance, but you can approach it with curiosity and compassion too, right? What am I afraid of if I start unpacking this? What do I need to have some safety around this? How is this going to help me and feels like it's worth facing this in a way that feels safe enough? I think self-compassion too, because you can beat yourself up along the way going, oh my God, I am such a dickhead. How could I have believed that? And I've damaged myself. I've only got myself to blame. Well, no, you haven't. And I think we've heard today that you do not have yourself to blame. I mean, you've been subject to a very damaging system, which covertly or overtly has this effect on us and don't blame yourself. I mean, self-forgiveness, I think, has been something that both Troy and I have spoken about several times through the pod that has been critical in your healing journey. So again, Catherine, thank you so much. We really look forward to people connecting with your work further because I think it can really help people on that healing journey. And it's so incredibly important. Go easy on yourself, people. For those who have listened to this, you, you could be sitting there going, oh my God, really? This is just so hard. And yeah, it is, but there's help at hand and that is the most incredibly beautiful thing about it. So thank you again and we'll see you soon. All right. Thank you both so much. If you'd like to connect with the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast, then please see the links in our link tree in the show notes. We invite you to pop across to our very vibrant listener community on Facebook, which is a private group, and we're also on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit. Also, a huge thank you to Lucy, who manages our social strategy, and to Kerry and Bree, who manage our Facebook listener group. All of our episodes are transcribed to increase accessibility, and the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. It's produced and hosted by Brian McDowell and Troy Waller, with all sound production and editing done by Troy Waller. You can find all these links in our link tree in the show notes.